as we continue the Gospel of Luke, we, the whole point of us going through the Gospel of Luke is to give us a renewed certainty in the covenant story of God, right? God, the story with, of Jesus did not start, you know, with Billy Graham at Veterans Stadium. It did not start with Martin Luther. It did not start even with Jesus of Nazareth. It started a long, long time ago when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1. And that story with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the prophets, you got the kings mixed in there, the judges mixed in there. That story's been going on for a really long time, a really long time. But that whole story's been fulfilled by Jesus. And that's what we need certainty in is that the story that God has been doing throughout all of history since the beginning of the universe is something that was fulfilled in Jesus. And it's a covenant story, meaning that God is actually faithful in his story to his people. So even though his people are unfaithful, God is faithful. And that because of their unfaithfulness, it had to be fulfilled by Jesus, who is Lord of all, so that you and I can then take the freedom of the gospel to all. And so we spent the first two weeks of Luke, we spent talking about God's faithfulness, and now we're moving into a section of Luke where we're going to talk about God's love for the lost. And as we look at God's love for the lost, my hope is for you, for me, that our hearts will be stirred up for the lost. That those who don't follow Jesus need Jesus. And my hope is that you'll be stirred up because you'll see what Jesus says. You'll see what Jesus does and go, I want to be part of that. That is a better story than any story that I tell myself. And any story that I hear is the story of Jesus and the freedom of the gospel that he brings. Because God cares about the lost. You and I should care about the lost. But a lot of times we get in our circles, we get in our comfort zones, we make all Christian friends, and then we figure out we can't, we actually don't know anybody who's lost. And we're not interacting with the lost. But God cares about the lost. Jesus cares about the lost. You and I should care about the lost. And today I want us to understand that God's grace is for everyone who's open to the good news of Jesus and is willing to receive it. God's grace is for everyone. And all you have to do is be open to it and receive it. That's it. And so we look at what's happening here with Jesus in Luke chapter 4, that Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist at this point, and that's a different baptism than the one Jesus institutes. And I can't really get into that today. Um, it's a topic for another day, but they are different baptisms and they have different purposes. But Jesus gets baptized on behalf of Israel, and then he goes into the wilderness, which is like a really interesting thing. Like a lot of times we paint the Christian story, right, that like, if you get baptized and you start following Jesus, everything's going to be good. Everything's going to be perfect. And there's preachers out there who will tell you that. Just become a Christian and everything will just flourish and your life will be perfect. But Jesus' life is different than that. He gets baptized and then what happens? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days, led there by the Holy Spirit, and he's tempted constantly by the devil. There's probably some truth there that the devil doesn't like when we start committing our lives to God. And that's when he starts to attack but now he begins his ministry. Look at verse 14 of chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Right? He left in this power of the Spirit, got tempted. Now he's returning to Galilee. And a report about him went throughout 
all of the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then what Luke does is he records one specific moment of Jesus' teaching at a synagogue in Nazareth, where the people go from loving what Jesus says to wanting to throw him off a cliff. I've preached hundreds of sermons. That has never been my experience. Everybody loves what you say, and then all of a sudden, they want to kill you. Never has happened to me. But I want us to step back for a second here. And I want us to think about what's going on here. And I want us to think about it through the framework of what sociologists call plausibility structures. Now, I'm going to define that for you, but if you're like me, you kind of need to break it down for a second, right? Plausibility structures. You're like, plausible, okay, got that word. I know what that means. Structure, okay, I know what that means, or I think I do. So plausibility structures. It's this idea that everything you and I believe is filtered through our plausibility structures. So over the years, you and I have learned, and in fact, we've caught more than we've been taught, to think about what certain things are possible and what certain things aren't possible, right? What things are plausible and what aren't. And that forms our plausibility structure. Got it? Good. Two of you got it. All right, great. We're moving on. So when you and I receive new information, you filter it through a plausibility structure. You say, this is possible or this is not possible based on what I already believe. But the problem is, you don't know you're doing it. I don't know I'm doing it. I just do it. So let me give you a fun example, and I'll give you a serious one. Kids, teenagers, if you go home today, and you walk into the cabinet or the cupboard, and you find there's a new box of fudge stripes in there that wasn't there yesterday, Somehow it made it 24 hours without your siblings ripping through it, but they're there. You would assume that the cookies got there, the fudge stripes got there, how? Mom or dad, right? They must have bought these new cookies. Fantastic. I'm the first person to find them in the house. Here we go. But if I came to you and then said, actually, did you know that there are these little elves that live in a tree and their job is for a major corporation to make bake cookies in a tree. And that's how they got here. You'd be like, that's not possible. You would think I'm crazy. You'd probably call our elders David and Clayton. You'd be like, hey, has anybody checked in on Evan lately? He believes there's elves baking cookies in trees. But a serious example in terms of plausibility structures, if you're a Christian, you may go outside tonight and you see the sun setting and you're like, wow, that is beautiful. Look how majestic. Look at all the colors. Look how amazing it is. And you go, how can people not believe there's a God? Because your plausibility structure is one in which God's existence is possible. So you filter it through, you filter the sunset through that plausibility structure, and you determine that a creator God is responsible for the sun and the clouds and all the colors. 
but you may call your atheist friend who has a different plausibility structure and you say, you say, hey man, look outside right now. Look at that sunset. Isn't it amazing? How can you not believe that God exists when you see that? And your friend might go, well, AIDS? Parasites that eat their hosts to keep living? Cancer and genocide. And then hang up on you. Why? Because their plausibility structure is one where God doesn't exist. And so God, uh, creator God is not possible and is not responsible for these images in the sky. Because in their minds, all evidence points to the contrary. We have plausibility structures that tell us what's possible and what's not. And it creates this story that we live out of. Out of. So for most of us, if not all of us, you and I live out of this story because of our plausibility structures. We live out of this story where we say there are quote-unquote right people and then there are quote-unquote wrong people. And we believe God's grace is for the right people, but it's not possible that it would be for the wrong people. And so today what I want you to see is that we'll see We'll see here the blessings, the shock, and the offer of God's grace. And I hope it will shake up your plausibility structure. As Jesus likes to do, he likes to shake up things the way we think of them. He likes to shake them up to give us better stories to live out of and to begin to appreciate God's grace and to receive it yourself. And to see his grace as possible for everyone, not just the people you deem as the quote-unquote right people, but for the wrong people too. So we see Jesus, he stands up at the synagogue to preach. And he unrolls the scroll and he reads in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to bring the blessing of God's grace to everyone who will receive them. Anybody who wants to receive the blessings of God's grace can receive them in and because of Jesus. At an ancient synagogue service, you would meet on Saturday, which was the Sabbath. And you would have, you, the only way you were able to pull off a service is if you had 10 adult males there. So it doesn't matter if you have kids there. It doesn't matter if you have women there. As long as you, you had to have 10 adult males there. And there was a certain liturgy to it. Every time they would gather together, they would say the Shema, which is, Hear, Israel, Lord your God, he is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. They would say it every time. And then they would pray. And they would usually have set prayers and then they would have a reading from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then they would have a reading from the prophets. And then somebody would stand up and give instructions. Somebody would stand up and give a sermon. And they would link the passages together. And then they were dismissed with what? A benediction. A blessing. So you're like, where do we get this liturgy thing from? The liberty with an I at the end of its name? Make up liturgy? Is that like a thing? No, like there's continuity between the Old Testament and what the Jewish people have done and what the Christians do. And we do that every Sunday. We do a liturgy doing similar things. 
But again, the continuity, discontinuity between Israel and the church is also another topic for another day. So we'll have to wait on that or ask Pastor Kyle and he'll explain it to you. So Jesus is handed the prophet Isaiah and he finds Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 2 and he reads it. In Isaiah 60, God has begun to speak through Isaiah that Israel's exile is ending. And that the exile will take place, sorry, the end of the exile will take place by a servant Messiah who will bring about the year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee. In Leviticus 25, God commanded Israel that every 50 years they would observe Jubilee. And at that time, all of Israel's sins would be forgiven and all, their fin- all financial debts would be erased. That'd be awesome, right? If like every 50 years, like the government's like, everybody's debt is cleared. MasterCard would be up- really upset, but that's what we're doing. So Jesus then comes on the scene and he, he preaches this to them. He reads this to them and then he sits down and he says what in verse 21? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, I am the servant Messiah of Isaiah 60, and I brought the Jubilee with me. The poor will hear the good news. Captives will be set free. The blind will see, and there will be freedom to those who are oppressed. Now, remember what I said about plausibility structures, right? Plausible, I know what that means. Structure, I know what that means. Evan talked about elves, and now we're here. If you're a plausibility structure of first century Jew, how would you have heard this? At that time, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, they still believed they were in exile. Even though they're back in the land, they still talk about like they're in exile because the Romans are in charge. And so Jesus says, I'm the servant Messiah bringing about jubilee. And what they would have heard is awesome. That means that God is finally bringing judgment on the nations, particularly the Romans. And the blessings of jubilee are now coming to us. God will forgive us. We'll be able to wipe out our debts. Everything's going to be awesome. The people of Israel are going to be back on top. And they believe it because God had chosen Israel. And they believed because he had chosen them, these jubilee blessings would be for them. And in some sense, they were absolutely right. It was for them. But what Jesus says, it's really for anyone who is poor. See, the poor was not just an economic status. Jesus isn't just talking about like, hey, this economic status or this class of people, the poor although there is some of that there, he's more talking about their spiritual status. Anyone who is spiritually poor, I'm here for. What the Old Testament calls the pious poor, the afflicted, or what, what Mary calls the humble. Think about Mary when she hears that she's going to bear the Messiah. In verse 50 of chapter 1, she says, His mercy is for those who fear him. God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of what? Humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. 
See, the spiritually poor realize they have nothing to offer God. They have no wealth. They have no power. They have no status to rely on. They only can rely on God himself. So my question for you is, do you see yourself as spiritually poor? And maybe you're here and you're like, I don't feel like I have anything to offer God. I have nothing in me. If so, the blessings of God's grace are for you. You just need to be open to it and be willing to receive it. So you might be here and you're like, I can believe in God's grace for everyone else, but not me. I'm too messed up. I got too much baggage. I've done some things that are unforgivable. To you, Jesus says, the blessings of God's grace are for you. Jesus is telling you, I'm telling you, change your plausibility structure. Shake it up. See a new possibility that there's a better story for you than the one you've been living out of. And God's grace is possible for you. Because if I constantly tell myself, or if you constantly tell yourself, I'm unworthy, God will never accept me, I'm too far gone, I'll never match up, I'm the wrong person, it's easier for me to believe in elves baking cookies and trees for major corporations than to believe that God's grace is for me, you need a new plausibility structure. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. So when you are thinking that the blessings of God are not for me. You need to capture that thought as it makes its way through your plausibility structure. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to wrangle that thought. You need to beat it down until it obeys Christ. So every morning, you may need to remind yourself, I'm a child of God, and just play the game tape over and over and over again. And that Jesus came and he died for me over and over and over again. So you stop filtering it through your plausibility structure, and you take on the one that God gives you through and in his word. Because it's not about what, how you see yourself or what you think is possible. It's how God sees you, what God says about you, what God says is possible. And that's the plausibility structure to be thinking through. Not yours, but God's. The one that says, you are a child of God. I know you feel worthless. I know you feel like you're far away. I know you feel like you're the sinner of sinners. And if you feel that way, God is saying, you, my grace is for you. A new possibility, a new story for you. And that's why so much of grace is shocking. But it's also shocking for other reasons. Look at verse 22. All spoke well of Jesus and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? All right. We love Jesus. Jesus is awesome. Fantastic. Jump down to verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. The crowd in the synagogue goes from being marveled at Jesus' gracious words to being filled with wrath and then trying to kill him. Why? Because the shock of God's grace is that Jesus saves the wrong people. Jesus doesn't save the right people. He saves the wrong people. Jesus says, I'm the servant Messiah. 
I'm not here to enact God's judgment on the nations. I'm not here to enact God's judgment on the Romans. Instead, I'm here to show God's grace to them. Think about how shocking that would be. Jesus is saying, you're reading the Bible wrong. That's what he's saying. You're reading the Bible wrong. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation where you told somebody they're reading the Bible wrong. They do not like it. Also, don't be the guy who's telling everybody all the time they're reading the Bible wrong. Don't be that guy either, but roll with me here. Jesus is saying God's plan was always to offer his grace to the nations and not destroy them. So he says, look back. Almost like if we look back in Genesis 12 where God calls Abraham, he says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And so a first century Jewish person in their plausibility structure would go, great. God's going to bless us and destroy the Romans because we bless Abraham's children and the Romans curse and dishonor us. Therefore, God's going to judge them. But Jesus says, hold on. Hold on. Finish the verse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus is saying, you stopped reading too soon. You're Abraham's children. You aren't supposed to be cursing the Romans. You're supposed to be a blessing to them. The way, of God, the way God is fulfilling his covenant story is in me, and I'm offering his grace to everyone, even those you deem to be the wrong people. And then Jesus references two stories. And he says, Israel was in the middle of a famine. There's hungry and thirsty people all throughout Israel. But who does God send the prophet Elijah to? A Gentile widow. There's hungry people everywhere. All in Israel. All the people of God are hungry and thirsty. Who's God send Elijah to? A widow. And Elijah does this miracle where the widow and her son have food to eat every day. And then he says there were tons of lepers in Israel in Elisha's day. A ton of people with these skin conditions Fingers falling off, ears falling off, tons of them in Israel. And God could have used Elisha to heal any of them. But God only used Elisha to heal the Gentile Naaman. N.T. Wright puts it in context this way. He says, Jesus is pointing out that when the great prophets were active, it wasn't Israel who benefited, but only the pagans. That's like someone in Britain or France during the Second World War speaking of God's healing and restoration for Adolf Hitler. It's not what people wanted to hear. God bypassed all the right people to get to the wrong ones. And the Jews would say, hold on. The servant Messiah is here and God's blessings are for them? See, some of us are going to be shocked about who God allowed into heaven. We'll be sharing the heavenly block with the lost and undeserving in our eyes. But not in God's eyes. Because they put their faith and trust in Jesus, it doesn't matter how you see them, it's how he sees them. Some of those people are going to have bigger houses than me. 
I imagine the apostles were shocked to see the thief on the cross in heaven. They're like, how did he get here? Didn't he uh, steal stuff? Didn't he get killed on the cross? How did he get here? And I imagine the thief on the cross has no other way to understand how he got there except Jesus said he could come. Who would shock you to see them in heaven? I saw a tweet this morning. If you don't know what a tweet is, you can ask a teenager. That said, God loves everyone you hate, which is wild. God loves everyone you hate. God loves everyone you just tolerate. God hates every, God loves everyone you try to avoid. God loves everyone you get annoyed with. Because the shock of grace is it's for everyone. I remember coming out of a Wendy's parking lot. Don't judge me. I ate at Wendy's when I was in college. And I remember finding a chart written by a local, the local church that shared the same parking lot about who was going to be in heaven and who was going to be in hell. And I was like, all right, let's go. Let's check this out. Let's see. I'm excited. Let's check this out. So there's one column that says heaven. Another column that says hell. And it was like, heaven, those who believe in the Bible is God's word. I was like, that's oddly specific, but all right. Hell, Democrats. I was like, I didn't really see those as opposites. But okay, let's keep going. Heaven, those who sing hymns only at church. Hell, those who sing contemporary worship songs. And I was like, all right, I'm out. Like, this has got to be a joke, right? Like, am I on candid camera? Or something. But this is, how, this is a religious impulse. The religious impulse is to create categories of who's in and who's out. Who's right and who's wrong. These are the right people. These are quote unquote the wrong people. And you might be here today and you're like, I'm not religious. But we all have a religious impulse. What do you think cancel culture is? It's a religious impulse. These are the right things to say. These are the wrong things to say. Say the wrong thing and you're one of the wrong people. And now society's grace is no longer for you. That's a religious impulse. Our plausibility structures are very religious. The right people receive grace, the wrong people don't. And we match up each person to who we believe deserves God's grace and who doesn't. And what happens then is we start to blame the wrong people for all the ills of the world. Right? We know we're on the right. We're always on the right. Every time. I'm always over here. But we know the wrong people. They're the problem. They're, they're the problem for the ills of the world. So what we do is we avoid and we reject them. And then we get into our holy huddles over here with all the other right people. And then we only listen to people in that echo chamber. We don't want to hear anything from them. And then if one of the wrong people does something nice, or they even have like crazy thought, they have good ideas, we can't accept it. Why? Because they're a wrong person. They're in this category. So we shut them out, we run from them, and worse, we seek to remove them any way we can. We ignore them at church, we vote people in who will anger them and force them out. We move to a place where we can be with more of the right people. Like there was a sudden flood to like, of conservatives that moved to Florida. Like, that could change on a dime. But what that is, that's the religious impulse. I need to get away from all the wrong, crazy people in Philadelphia. 
to Florida, where Mickey Mouse lives. It's got to be good there. Who is that for you? Who's the wrong person? Teenagers, is that a kid at school who everyone says is weird, annoying, worthless? Parents, is that someone who has a differing parenting style than you? Like some parents have that like free flowing parenting style, like let the kid lick the walls and put his fingers in sockets. That's cool. He'll learn. And you're like, no, actually structures and rules and we need to set this up. That's what the right people do. Who is that for you? Who's the wrong person? Democrats? Republicans? Maskers? Non-maskers? Vaxxers? Non-vaxxers? What about public schoolers? Yeah, the public schoolers. Whew, they're definitely over here. Christian schoolers? Like all the public school kids, they don't like the Christian school kids, so now Christian school kids are over here. We all know the homeschoolers. They're definitely over here. Right? But homeschoolers are like, we're over here. Who is that? Who is that for you? Is that the Black Lives Matter crowd? Are they the wrong people? Or maybe like the Blue Lives Matter crowd. They're the wrong people. Is it Calvinists? Arminians? The people who like liturgy? The people who like charismatic elements in the service? Who are the wrong people in your eyes? There's a story of an old fish. It's not a real story. It's one that's made up. About an old fish who passed by two young fish. And the old fish says, good morning, fellas. How's the water today? And the two young fish turn to each other and they say, what's water? See, the problem is we don't even realize that we're filtering everything through our plausibility structures. They're so ingrained in us. You don't even know you're swimming in water. And so we start living out of that story. Right people, wrong people. So Christians, what ends up happening is we divide churches over that. Well, these guys like liturgy. These guys like contemporary stuff. Let's just keep them apart. They can't worship together. Well, I heard about this one church in the Northeast. They try to mix it up. Or maybe if you're more of a secular person here today, that's how you divide countries. Wrong people. Let's get them out of here. Or all of us doing that just creates a divided world. Unless Jesus comes into our synagogue or into our world and shakes up what we think is possible, that's all you're going to do time and time again. Right people, wrong people. But here's the deal. Jesus always saves the wrong people. Because the wrong people are all that there are. Jesus only dies for the wrong people. Because that's all there are. Jesus rose again for the wrong people, always, because the wrong people are all that there are. And he's coming again for the wrong people, because the wrong people are all that there are. Romans 5 tells us that you and I, without Christ, are weak, ungodly, enemies of God, the wrong people. Yet God loved us and sent Jesus to die for us to save us. And to bring us into a relationship with God. God sees everybody in the world, the wrong people, and says, I want them. I love 
them. So he offers us his grace. If you look at John 1, 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Stop. But to all who did receive him. All who believed in his name. He gave the right to be children of God. God offers his grace to everyone, anyone who believes in Jesus. All you have to do is receive Jesus in everyone and anyone who does. He moves from being weak, ungodly enemies, the wrong people, to being the right people. To becoming his beloved children. But God makes that move. You understand? Look at me. God makes the move. God says, you are wrong, now you're right. You don't get to decide that. I don't get to decide that. So if I'm annoyed in heaven because somebody's there, because God reached across and grabbed them too, and now I'm sharing the block with them, I'm just going to have to live with that for all eternity. See, this shakes up my plausibility structure. Once I realize that I am the wrong person and I was the wrong person and I always am the wrong person unless Jesus saves me and pulls me over to the line, across the line. And that he saved me anyway, even though I was wrong, even though I was weak, even though I was ungodly, even though I was an enemy, he pulled me across. A world where the wrong people flood to Jesus and share in God's grace all of a sudden becomes possible for me. Because I realize it was possible for me. You can reach the loss. I can reach the loss when we realize it's possible because it was possible for us. And once you see that as possible, sure, it's going to make you uncomfortable, but you won't reject or avoid or keep the loss at arm's length because it's possible for God to reach those people and he wants to use you. 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 To do that. But if you keep God's grace to yourself, you're no better than the people in the synagogue. You love when Jesus is talking about you. All right, yeah, let's do it. Talking about other people, freak out. You get angry. And that Jesus asks you to share the good news with those who are the wrong people, what you'll try to do, just like the people in the synagogue, throw Jesus off a cliff. Throw him off the cliff of your life. So let me ask you, who do you see as the wrong people? Who do you believe reaching with the gospel would be impossible? Who would you shock? Who would it shock you to see them in heaven? Can I challenge you? Move closer to that person not further from them. Be the person everyone blames for you getting them into heaven. Like we're all really annoyed at you because Evan is in heaven because you brought him there. He talks a lot with his hands. He rambles on. He preaches way too long. How did he get here? Why is he in our home meeting? Why is he coming to events? Why is he at my church? Because of you? Be that person. Let everybody blame you. And next time that person annoys you or those people annoy you, here's a, here's a wild thought. Pray for them. Not like, oh, Lord, I thank you that I am not like the tax collector. I am not like the sinner. But, Lord, I, was, I am lost too and would be without you. 
and then take a deep breath. And here's an even wilder thought. Invite them to church. So no one's, like, if it's your neighbor or your coworker or your classmate, just start being friendly to them. No one's asking you to be besties with everybody. But you can show them the same kindness you received in Jesus. It requires sacrifice like Jesus' sacrifice. And here's, here's just a warning. If you start hanging out with all the quote-unquote wrong people, all the right people will get angry at you too. But that's a sermon next week. But your heart posture has to change. My heart posture has to change. Our plausibility structures have to change. We need to pray that God would give us hearts that love the lost, the wrong people, and start building bridges. So right now, my challenge to you, when I, as I pray, think about one person who you think is the wrong person and write their name down in your phone, on the back of the bulletin, or in your scripture journal. Think about somebody who's lost and say, I'm going to invite them to church. It might take 10 times and they finally will, but I'm going to do it. And whoever the wrong person is, whoever the wrong people are, remember God's grace is for everyone who believes in Jesus, even though those people you think are the wrong people. Because you were the wrong person and he saved you anyway. Let's pray. Hey, maybe you're here today and you think you're the wrong person. You think there's no way that Jesus could save you or rescue you. You're too far gone. You're too messed up. You're too screwed up. You're wrong. But Jesus only saves the wrong people because the wrong people are all that there are. Just take a moment and silently ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and trust in his cross and what he's done there for you. And Father, for the rest of us, I pray that we would have different plausibility structures, that we would have different hearts, a different heart posture that's closer to yours, that is yours. Forgive us for the ways we categorize people into the right and the wrong and help us remember that I am and was wrong, but Jesus died for me anyway. And may I make sacrifices because of his sacrifice. Lord, I pray for all the people that were written down, that were noted in, the, in our minds, our hearts, and on paper or in our phones. I pray for those people right now that they would see the love of Jesus through us and a wild, out-of-left-field invitation to invite them to church to hear the gospel would be received. We pray all this in Christ's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.